Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Taiko Alhambra. Thank you for listening. Um, this is the time. This is it. Uh, I have I've I've known about this story for two years now, maybe two or almost maybe almost three. Um You know what just occurred to me just now, this very second as I was recording, was that <laughs> Back at the end of January, and I totally did not even comment on it. I passed the um, the was it two years? Two years of unbroken recording of not missing a single week. Two years. And I was back at the uh, very very end of January, beginning of February, and I just completely missed it. And uh, uh, now I feel like an idiot. So hi everybody, uh, I'm your host. I'm an idiot. Uh, this is a story I've known about for two or three years. I've it's always kind of been on the back burner of my mind to do it, um, but uh, I think um, I think I'm going to go ahead and do it. It's going to be it's going to be spread out over the next couple of weeks because it is very long. Um, not as it is not nowhere near as long as the three imposters, um, but uh, it is it is a fairly it is a novella. So, but um, we're going to go ahead and and get into it. Uh, just a quick update for, from me, the, uh, the vaccine here in the COVID vaccines here in Georgia have opened up to a larger group of people. So, um, we have been vaccinating about three times as many people per day as we did over the last, over, over the last week. So last week we were only doing about 500 a day. This week we've been doing between 1100 and 1500 a day, which is putting us right around 65 to 7,000 people, uh, for this past week. Uh, that we got that we got um, first dose and second dose, and uh, that's really exciting. And uh, I certainly hope that uh, everybody who is listening to this has the chance very soon, if not had the chance already, to go out and get vaccinated. Um, please do uh, if you get the opportunity. It, um, it it will protect you. It will protect your family, uh, and it will you know. The sooner we get up to that herd immunity level of 85, 80 to eighty five percent, then you know the sooner we can get over this and we can all get back to hanging out with our friends. My wife got her first dose of the vaccine yesterday. So we're all really excited about that. Um, and, uh, other than that, I think that's about it. Let's go ahead and get into the story. I've prattled on long enough. Thank you for listening. The horror from the Hills by Frank Belknap long chapter one, the coming of the stone beast. In a long, low-ceilinged room adorned with Egyptian, Greco-Roman, Minoan, and Assyrian antiquities, a thin, careless-seeming young man of twenty-six sat jubilantly humming. As nothing in his appearance or manner suggested the scholar, he wore gray tweeds of Ivy League cut, a pinstriped blue shirt with a button-down collar, and a ridiculously brilliant necktie. The uninitiated were inclined to regard him as a mere supernumerary in his own office. Strangers entered unannounced and called him young man at least twenty times a week, and he was frequently asked to convey messages to a non-existent superior. No one suspected, no one dreamed until he enlightened them, that he was the lawful custodian of the objects about him, and even when he revealed his identity, people surveyed him with distrust and were inclined to suspect that he was ironically joking with them. Algernon Harris was the young man's name, and postgraduate degrees from Yale and Oxford set him distinctly apart from the undistinguished majority. 
but it is to his credit that he never paraded his erudition, nor succumbed to the impulse, almost irresistible in a young man with academic affiliations, to put a Ph.D. on the title page of his first book. It was this book which had endeared him to the directors of the Manhattan Museum of Fine Arts and prompted their unanimous choice of him to succeed the late Halpin Calmers as curator of archaeology when the latter retired in the fall of the previous year. In less than six months, young Harris had exhaustively familiarized himself with the duties and responsibilities of his office and was becoming the most successful curator that the museum had ever employed. So boyishly ebullient was he, so consumed with investigative zeal, that his field workers contracted his enthusiasm as though it were a kind of fever and sped from his presence to trust their scholarly and highly cultivated lives to the most primitive of native tribes and regions where an outsider was still looked upon with suspicion and was always in danger of bringing down the thunder. And now they were coming back. For days now they had been coming back, occasionally with haggard faces and once or twice, unfortunately, with something radically wrong with them. The Simons tragedy was a case in point. Simons was a Chang Dynasty specialist, and he had been obliged to leave his left eye and a piece of his nose in a Buddhist temple near a place called Fen Chao Fu. But when Algernon questioned him, he could only mumble something about a small, malignant face with corpsey eyes that had glared and glared at him out of a purple mist. And Francis Hogarth lost 80 pounds and a perfectly good right arm somewhere between Lake Rudolph and Naivasha in the Anglo-Egyptian Sudan. But a few inexplicable, and hence from a scientific point of view, unfortunate occurrences were more than compensated for by the archaeological treasures that the successful explorers brought back and figuratively dumped at Algernon's feet. There were mirrors of Greco-Bactrian design and miniature tiger dragons or tutis from central China dating from at least 200 B.C., enormous diorite sphinxes from the Valley of the Nile, geometric vases from Mycenaean Crete, incised pottery from Messina and Syracuse, linens and spindles from the Swiss lakes, sculptured lintels from Yucatan and Mexico, Mayan and Manabi monoliths ten feet tall, Paleolithic Venuses from the rock caverns of the Pyrenees, and even a series of rare bilingual tablets in Hamitic and Latin from the site of Carthage. It is not surprising that so splendid a gathering should have elated Algernon immoderately and impelled him to behave like a college junior at a fraternity house jamboree. He addressed the attendants by their first names, slapped them boisterously upon their shoulders whenever they had occasion to approach him, and went roaming haphazardly about the building immersed in ecstatic reveries. So far indeed did he descend from his pedestal that even the directors were disturbed, and it is doubtful if anything short of the arrival of Clark Ullman could have jolted him out of it. Ullman may have been aware of this, for he telephoned first to break the news mercifully. He had apparently heard of the success of the other expeditions, and hated infernally to intrude his skeleton at the banquet. Algernon, as we have seen, was humming, and the jingling of a phone bell at his elbow was the first intimation he had of Ullman's return. Hastily detaching the receiver, he pressed it against his ear and injected a staccato, what is it, into the mouthpiece. There ensued a silence. Then Ullman's voice, disconcertingly shrill, forced him to hold the receiver a little further from his ear. I've got the god, Algernon, and I'll be over with it directly. I have three men helping me. It's four feet high and as heavy as granite. Oh, it's a strange, loathsome thing, Algernon, and an unholy thing. 
I shall insist that you destroy it. What? What's that? Algernon raised his voice incredulously. You may photograph it and study it, but, but you've got to destroy it. You'll understand when you see what, what I have become. There came a hoarse sobbing while Algernon struggled to comprehend what the other was driving at. It has wreaked its malice on me. On me. With a frown, Algernon recradled the receiver and began agitatedly to pace the room. The elephant god of Tseng, he muttered to himself. The horror Richardson drew before, before they impaled him. It's unbelievable. Ullman has crossed the desert plateau on foot. He's crossed above the graves of Steelbrath, Tarkin, McWilliams, Henley, and Holmes. Richardson swore the cave was guarded night and day by hideous yellow abnormalities. I'm sure that's the phrase he used, abnormalities without faces. Subhuman worshippers only vaguely manlike, enthralled to some malign wizardry. He averred they moved in circles about the idol on their hands and knees and participated in a rite so foul that he dared not describe it. His escape was a sheer miracle. He had displayed extraordinary courage and endurance when they had tortured him, and it was merely because they couldn't kill him that the priest was impressed. A man who can curse valiantly after three days of agonizing torture must, of necessity, be a great magician and wonder worker. But it couldn't have happened twice. Ullman could never have achieved such a break. He's too frail. A day on their cross would have finished him. They would never have released him and decked him out with flowers and worshipped him as a sort of subsidiary elephant god. Richardson predicted that no other white man would ever get into the cave alive, and as for getting out, I can't imagine how Ullman did it. If he encountered even a few of Richardson's beast men, it isn't surprising he broke down on the phone. Destroy the statue? Imagine, sheer insanity that. Ullman is evidently in a highly nervous and excitable state, and, and we shall have to handle him with gloves. There came a knock at the door. I don't wish to be disturbed, shouted Algernon irritably. We've got a package for you, sir. The doorman said for us to bring it up here. Oh, all right, I'll sign for it. The door swung wide, and in walked three harshly breathing, shabbily dressed men staggering beneath a heavy burden. Put it down there, said Algernon, indicating a spot to the rear of his desk. The men complied with a celerity that amazed him. Did Mr. Ullman send you? He demanded curtly. Yes, sir. The spokesman's face had formed into a molding of relief. Poor guy said he'd be here himself in half an hour. Algernon started. What kind of talk is that? He demanded. He doesn't happen to be a guy, but I'll pretend you didn't say it. Why the poor? That's what I'm curious about. The spokesman shuffled his feet. It's on account of his face. There's something wrong with it. He keeps it covered and won't let nobody look at it. Good God, murmured Algernon. They've mutilated him. What's that, sir? What did you say? Algernon collected himself with an effort. Nothing. You may go now. The doorman will give you a dollar. I'll phone down and tell him. Silently, the men filed out. As soon as the door closed behind them, Algernon strode into the center of the room and began feverishly to strip the wrapping from the thing on the floor. He worked with manifest misgivings, the distaste in his eyes deepening to disgust and horror as the massive idol came into view. Words could not adequately convey the repulsiveness of the thing. It was endowed with a trunk and great uneven ears, and two enormous tusks protruded from the corners of its mouth. But... It was not an elephant. 
Indeed, its resemblance to an actual elephant was, at best, sporadic and superficial, despite certain unmistakable points of similarity. The ears were webbed and tentacled. The trunk terminated in a huge flaring disc at least a foot in diameter, and the tusks, which intertwined and interlocked at the base of the statue, were as translucent as rock crystal. The pedestal upon which it squatted was of black onyx. The statue itself, with the exception of the tusks, had apparently been chiseled from a single block of stone and was so hideously mottled and eroded and discolored that it looked in spots as though it had been dipped in sanies. The thing sat bolt upright. Its forelimbs were bent stiffly at the elbow, and its hands, it had human hands, rested palms upward on its lap. Its shoulders were broad and square, and its breasts and enormous stomach sloped outward, cushioning the trunk. It was as quiescent as a Buddha, as enigmatical as a sphinx, and as malignantly poised as a gorgon or cockatrice. Algernon could not identify the stone out of which it had been hewn, and its greenish sheen disturbed and puzzled him. For a moment he stood, staring uncomfortably into its little malign eyes. Then he shivered, and taking down a woolen scarf from the coat rack in the corner, he cloaked securely the features which repelled him. Ullman arrived unannounced. He advanced unobtrusively into the room and laid a tremulous hand on Algernon's shoulder. "'Well, Algernon, how are you?' he murmured. "'I—I'm glad to get back, just to see—just to see an old friend is a comfort. I thought—well, it doesn't matter now. I was going to ask—to ask if you knew a good physician, but perhaps I—I—' Startled, Algernon glanced backward over his shoulder and straight into the other's eyes. He saw only the eyes, for the rest of Ullman's face was muffled by a black silk scarf. "'Clark!' he exclaimed. "'By God, but you gave me a start!' Rising quickly, he sent his chair spinning against the wall and gripped his friend affectionately by the shoulders. "'It's good to see you again, Clark,' he said with a warm cordiality in his voice. "'It's good—why, what's the matter?' Ullman had fallen upon his knees and was choking and gasping for breath. "'I should have warned you not to touch me,' he moaned. "'I can't stand being touched.' "'But why the wounds haven't healed?' he sobbed. "'It doesn't want them to heal. "'Every night it comes and lays the disc on them. "'I can't stand being touched.' "'Algernon nodded sympathetically. "'I can imagine what you've been through, Clark,' he said. "'You must take a vacation. "'I'll have a talk with the directors about you tomorrow.' In view of what you've done for us, I'm sure I can get you at least four months. You can go to Spain and finish your glimpses into prehistory. Paleontological anthropology is a soothing science, Clark. You'll forget all about the perplexities of mere archaeological research when you start poking about among bones and artifacts that haven't been disturbed since the Pleistocene. Ullman had gotten to his feet and was staring at the opposite wall. You think that I have become... irresponsible? A look of sadness crept into Algernon's eyes. No, Clark, I think you're merely suffering from... from non-psychotic, very transitory visual hallucinations. An almost unbearable strain can sometimes produce hallucinations when 
One's sanity is in no way impaired, and considering what you've been through, what I've been through, Almond caught at the phrase, would it interest you to know precisely what they did to me? Algernon nodded, meeting the other's gaze steadily. Yes, Clark, I wish to hear everything. They said that I must accompany Shaunier Fawn into the world. Shaunier Fawn? That is the name they worship it by. When I told them I had come from the United States, they said that great Shaunier had willed that I should be his companion. It must be carried, they explained, and it must be nursed. If it is nursed and carried safely beyond the rising sun, it will possess the world. And then all things that are now in the world, all creatures and plants and stones, will be devoured by great Shaunier. All things that are and have been will cease to be, and great Shaunier will fill all space with its oneness. Even its brothers it will devour. Its brothers who will come down from the mountains ravening for ecstasy when it calls to them. They didn't use precisely that term, because ecstasy is a very sophisticated word, peculiar to our language, but that's the closest I can come to it. In their own aberrant way, they were the opposite of unsophisticated. I didn't protest when they explained this to me. It was precisely the kind of break I had been hoping for. I had studied Richardson's book, you see, and I had read enough between the lines to convince me that Shaunier Fawn's devotees were growing a little weary of it. It isn't a very pleasant deity to have around. It has some regrettable and very nasty habits. A horror was taking shape in Almond's eyes. You must excuse my levity. When one is tottering on the edge of an abyss, it isn't always expedient to dispense with irony. Were I to become wholly serious for a moment, were I to let the, what I believe, what I know to be the truth behind all that I'm telling you, coalesce into a definite construction in my mind, I should go quite mad. Let us call them merely regrettable habits. I guessed, as I say, that the guardians of the cave were not very enthusiastic about retaining Shaunier Fawn indefinitely. It made depredations. The guardians would disappear in the night and leave their clothes behind them, and the clothes upon examination would yield something rather ghastly. But however much your savage may want to dispose of his god, the thing isn't always feasible. It would be the height of folly to attempt to send an omnipotent deity on a long journey without adequate justification. An angered god can take vengeance even when he is on the opposite side of the world. And that is why most barbarians who find themselves saddled with a deity they fear and hate are obliged to put up with it indefinitely. The only thing that can help them is a legend, some oral or written legend that will enable them to send their ogre packing without ruffling its temper. The devotees had such a legend. At a certain time, which the prophecy left gratifyingly indefinite, Shaunier Fawn was to be sent out into the world. It was to be sent out to possess the world to its everlasting glory, and it was also written that those who sent it forth should be forever immune from its anger. I knew of the existence of this legend, and when I read Richardson and discovered what a vile and unpleasant customer the god was, I decided I'd risk a trip across the desert plateau of Tsang.
You crossed on foot? Interrupted Algernon with undisguised admiration. There were no camels available, assented Almond. I made it on foot. On the fourth day, my water ran short and I was obliged to open a vein in my arm. On the fifth day, I began to see mirages, probably of a purely hallucinatory nature. On the seventh day, he paused and stared hard at Algernon. On the seventh day, I consumed the excrements of wild dogs. Algernon shuddered. But you reached the cave. I reached the cave. The faceless guardians whom Richardson described found me groveling on the sands in delirium a half-mile to the west of their sanctuary. They restored me by heating a flint until it was white-hot and laying it on my chest. If the high priest hadn't interfered, I should have shared Richardson's fate. Good God! The high priest was called Shunga, and he was devilishly considerate. He took me into the cave and introduced me to Shanyar Fawn. You've Shanyar there. Ullman pointed to the enshrouded form on the floor. And you can imagine what the sight of it, squatting on its haunches at the back of an evil-smelling, atrociously lighted cave would do to a man who had not eaten for three days. I began to say very queer things to Shanga. I confided to him that great Shanyar Fawn was not just a lifeless statue in a cave, but a great universal god filling all space, that it had created the world in a single instant by merely expelling its breath, and that when, eventually, it decided to inhale, the world would disappear. It also made this cave, I hasten to add, and you are its chosen prophet. The priest stared at me curiously for several moments without speaking. Then he approached the god and prostrated himself before it. Shanyar Fon, he intoned, the white acolyte has confirmed that you are about to become a great universal god filling all space. He will carry you safely into the world and nurse you until you have no further need of him. The prophecy of Musang has been most gloriously fulfilled. For several minutes he remained kneeling at the foot of the idol. Then he rose and approached me. You shall depart with great Shanyar tomorrow, he said. You shall become great Shanyar's companion and nurse. I felt a wave of gratitude for the man. Even in my befuddled state I was sensible that I had achieved a magnificent break. I will serve him gladly, I murmured. If only I may have some food. Shanga nodded. It is my wish that you eat heartily, he said. If you are to nurse great Shanyar, you must consume an infinite diversity of fruits and the flesh of animals. Red blood. Red blood is Shanyar's staff. Without it, my god would suffer tortures no man could endure. It is impossible for a man to know how great can be the suffering of a god. He tapped a drum, and immediately I was confronted with a wooden bowl filled to the brim with pomegranate juice. Drink heartily, he urged. I have reason to suspect that Shanyar Fawn will be ravenous tonight. I was so famished that I scarcely gave a thought to what he was saying, and for fifteen minutes I consumed without discrimination everything that was set before me. Evil-smelling herbs, used milk, eggs, peaches, and the fresh blood of antelopes. 
The priest watched me in silence. At last, when I could eat no more, he went into a corner of the cave and returned with a straw mattress. "'You have supped most creditably,' he murmured, "'and I wish you pleasant dreams.' With that, he withdrew, and I crawled gratefully upon the mat. My strength was wholly spent, and the dangers I still must face, the loathsome proximity of great Shanyer and the possibility that the priest had been deliberately playing a part and would return to kill me, were swallowed up in a physical urgency that bordered on delirium. Relaxing upon the straw, I shut my eyes and fell almost instantly into a deep sleep. I awoke with a start and a strange impression that I was not alone in the cave. Even before I opened my eyes, I knew that something unspeakably malign was crouching or squatting on the ground beside me. I could hear it breathing in the darkness, and the stench of it strangled the breath in my throat. Slowly, very slowly, I endeavored to rise. An unsurpassably ponderous weight descended upon my chest and hurled me to the ground. I stretched out my hand to disengage it and met with an iron resistance. A solid wall of something cold, slimy, and implacable rose up in the darkness to thwart me. In an instant I was fully awake and calling frantically for assistance, but no one came to me, and even as I screamed, the wall descended perpendicularly upon me and lay clamily upon my chest. An odor of corruption surged from it, and when I tore at it with my fingers it made a low, gurgling sound which gradually increased in volume till it woke echoes in the low-vaulted ceiling. The thing had pinioned my arms, and the more I twisted and squirmed, the more agonizingly it tightened about me. The constriction increased until breathing became a torture, until all my flesh palpitated with pain. I wriggled and twisted and bit my lips through in an extremity of horror. Then, abruptly, the pressure ceased and I became aware of two unblinking, fish-white eyes glaring truculently at me through the darkness. Agonizingly, I sat up and ran my hands over my chest and arms. My fingers encountered a warm wetness, and with a hideous clarity it was borne in on me that the thing had been feasting on my blood. The revelation was very close to mind-shattering, I was on my feet in an instant trying desperately not to succumb to panic, but knowing deep in my mind that it would be a losing battle. A most awful terror was upon me, and so unreasoning became my desire to escape from that fearsome vampirish obscenity that I retreated straight toward the throne of Shanyar Fawn. It loomed enormous in the darkness, a refuge and a sanctuary. The wild thought came to me that if I could scale the throne and climb upon the lap of the god, the horror might cease to molest me. Malignant beyond belief it undoubtedly was, but I refused to credit it with more than animalistic intelligence. Even in that moment of infinite peril, as I groped shakingly toward the rear of the cave, my mind was evolving a conceit to account for it. It was undoubtedly, I told myself, some cave-lurking survival from the age of reptiles, some 
atavistic and predatory abnormality that had experienced no necessity to advance on the course of evolution. It is more than probable that all backboned animals above the level of fishes and amphibians originated in Asia, and I had recklessly conveyed myself to the hoariest section of that primeval continent. Was it, after all, so amazing that I should have encountered, in a dark and inaccessible cave on a virtually uninhabited plateau, a reptilian predator, endowed with the rapacity of that most hideous of blood-sucking animals, the vampire bat of the tropics? It was a just short of destructive conceit, and it sustained me and made my desperate groping for some kind of certainty seem the opposite of wasted until I reached the throne of great Shanyar. I fear that, up to that instant, my failure to suspect the truth was downright idiotic. There was only one adequate explanation for what had occurred. But it wasn't until I actually ascended the throne and began to feel about in the darkness for the body of Shanyar that the truth rushed in upon me. Great Shanyar had forsaken its throne. It had descended into the cave and was roaming about in the darkness. In its vampirish explorations, it had stumbled upon my sleeping form and had felled me with its trunk so that it might satisfy its thirst for blood with quick and hideous ferocity. For an instant I crouched motionless upon the stone, screaming inwardly, feeling the darkness tightening about me like a shroud. Then, quickly, I began to descend, but I had not lowered more than my right leg when something ponderous collided with the base of the throne. The entire structure shook, and I was almost hurled to the ground. I refused to dwell on what happened after that. There are experiences too revolting for sane description. Were I to tell how the horror began slowly to mount, to recount at length how it heaved its slabby and mucid vastness to the pinnacle of its throne and began nauseatingly to breathe upon me? The slight uncertainty I now entertain as to my sanity would be dispelled in short order. Neither shall I describe how it picked me up in its corpse-cold hands and began detestably to maul me, and how I nearly fainted beneath the foulness which drooled from its mouth. Eventually it wearied of its malign sport. After sinking its slimy black nails into my throat and chest until the pain became almost unbearable, it experienced a sudden excess of wrath and hurled me violently from the pedestal. The fall stunned me, and for many minutes I lay on my back on the stones, dimly conscious only of a furtive whispering in the darkness about me. Then slowly my vision cleared, and under the guidance of some nebulous and sinister influence, my eyes were drawn upward until they encountered the pedestal from which I had fallen, and the enormous, ropey bulk of Shanyar Fawn loathsomely waving his great trunk in the dawn. It isn't surprising that when Shang-Ga found me deliriously gibbering at the cavern's mouth, he was obliged to carry me into the sunlight and force great wooden spoonfuls of revivifying wine down my parched throat. If there was anything inexplicable in the sequel to that hideous nightmare, it was the matter-of-fact reception which he accorded my story.
He nodded his head sympathetically when I recounted my experiences on the throne and assured me that the incident accorded splendidly with the prophecies of Mu Sang. I was afraid, he said, that great Shanyu would not accept you as its companion and nurse, that it would destroy you as utterly as it had the guardians. More of the guardians than you might suppose, for a god is not motivated by our kind of expediency. He studied me for a moment intensely. No doubt you think me a superstitious savage, a ridiculous barbarian. Would it surprise you very much if I should tell you that I have spent eight years in England, and that I am a graduate of the University of Oxford? I could only stare at him in stunned disbelief for a moment. But so unbelievable and ghastly had been the coming to life of Shanyar Fawn that lesser wonders made little impression on me and my incredulity passed quickly. Had he told me that he had an eye in the middle of his back or a tail twenty feet long which he kept continuously coiled about his body, I should have evinced little surprise. I doubt, indeed, if anything short of a universal cataclysm could have roused me from my dazed acceptance of revelations which, under ordinary circumstances, I should have dismissed as preposterous. It astonishes you, perhaps, that I should have cast my lot with filthy primitives in this loathsome place, and that I should have so uncompromisingly menaced your countrymen. A wistfulness crept into his eyes. Your Richardson was a brave man. Even Shanyar Fawn was moved to compassion by his valour. He gave no cry when we drove wooden stakes through his hands and impaled him. For three days he defied us. Then Shanyar tramped toward him in the night and set him at liberty. You may be sure that from that instant we accorded him every consideration, but to return to what you would undoubtedly call my perverse and atavistic attitude, why do you suppose I chose to serve Shanyar? His recapitulation of what he had done to Richardson had awakened in me a confused but violent resentment. I don't know, I muttered, there are degrees of human vileness. Spare me your opprobrium, I beg of you, he exclaimed. It was great Shanyar speaking through me that dictated the fate of Richardson. I am merely Shanyar's interpreter and instrument. For generations my forebears have served Shanyar, and I have never attempted to evade the duties that were delegated to me when our world was merely a thought in the mind of my god. I went to England and acquired a little of the West's decadent culture, merely that I might more worthily serve Shanyar. Don't imagine for a moment that Shanyar is a beneficent god. In the West you have evolved certain amiabilities of intercourse to which you presumptuously attach cosmic significance, such as truth, kindliness, generosity, forbearance, and honour and you quaintly imagine that a god who is beyond good and evil and hence unamenable to your ethics cannot be omnipotent. But how do you know that there are any beneficent laws in the universe, that the cosmos is friendly to man? Even in the mundane sphere of planetary life there is nothing to sustain such an hypothesis. Great Shanyar is a terrible god, an utterly cosmic and unanthropomorphic god. It is akin to the fire-mists and the primordial ooze, and before it incarnated itself in time, it contained within itself the past, the present, 
and the future. Nothing was, and nothing will be, but all things are. And Shonyur Fon was once the sum of all things that are. I remained silent, and a note of compassion crept into his voice. I think he perceived that I had no inclination to split hairs with him over the paradoxes of transcendental metaphysics. Shonyur Fon, he continued, did not always dwell in the East. Many thousands of years ago it abode with its brothers in a cave in Western Europe, and made from the flesh of toads a race of small dark shapes to serve it. In bodily contour these shapes resembled men, but they were incapable of speech, and their thoughts were the thoughts of Shonyur. The cave where Shonyur dwelt was never visited by men, for it wound its twisted length through a high and inaccessible crag of the mysterious Pyrenees, and all the regions beneath were rife with abominable hauntings. Twice a year, Shonyur Fawn sent its servants into the village that dotted the foothills to bring it the sustenance its belly craved. The chosen youths and maidens were preserved with spices and stored in the cave till Shonyur had need of them, and in the villages men would hurl their firstborns into the flames and offer prayers to their futile little gods, hoping thereby to appease the wrath of Shonyur's mindless servants. But eventually there came into the foothills men like gods, stout, eagle-visaged men who carried on their shields the insignia of invincible Rome. They scaled the mountains in pursuit of the servants and awoke a cosmic foreboding in the mind of Shonyur. It is true that its brethren succeeded without difficulty in exterminating the impious cohorts, exterminating them unspeakably before they reached the cave, but it feared that rumors of the attempted sacrilege would bring legions of the empire builders into the hills, and that eventually its sanctuary would be defiled. So, in ominous conclave, it debated with its brothers the advisability of flight. Rome was but a dream in the mind of Shonyur, and it could have destroyed her utterly in an instant, but having incarnated itself in time, it did not wish to resort to violence until the prophecies were fulfilled. Shonyur and its brothers conversed by means of thought transference in an idiom incomprehensible to us, and it would be both dangerous and futile to attempt to repeat the exact substance of their discourse. But it is recorded in the prophecy of Musang that great Shonyur spoke approximately as follows. Our servants shall carry us eastward to the primal continent, and there we shall await the arrival of the white acolyte. His brothers demurred. We are safe here, they affirmed. No one will scale the mountains again, for the doom that came to Pompolo will reverberate in the dreams of prophets till Rome is less to be feared than Moondim Nineveh or Medusa-girdled Ur. At that, great Shonyur waxed ireful and affirmed that it would go alone to the primal continent, leaving its brothers to cope with the menace of Rome. When the time frames... When the time frames are dissolved, I alone shall ascend in glory, it told them. All of you I shall devour before I ascend to the dark altars. When the hour of my transfiguration approaches... 
you will come down from the mountains cosmically athirst for that which is not to be spoken of. But even as your bodies raven for the time-dissolving sacrament, I shall consume them. Then it called to the servants and had them carry it to this place. And it caused Musang to be born from the womb of an ape and the prophecies to be written on imperishable parchment and into the care of my fathers it surrendered its body. I rose gropingly to my feet. Let me leave this place, I pleaded. I respect your beliefs and I give you my solemn word I will never attempt to return. Your secrets are safe with me. Only let me go. Chung Ga's features were convulsed with pity. It is stated in the prophecy that you must be Shanyar's companion and accompany it to America. In a few days it will experience a desire to feed again. You must nurse it unceasingly. I am ill, I pleaded. I cannot carry Shanyar Fawn across the desert plateau. I will have the guardians assist you, murmured Shung Ga soothingly. You shall be conveyed in comfort to the gates of Lhasa, and from Lhasa to the coast. It is less than a week's journey by caravan. I realized then how impossible it would be for me to depart without great Shanyar. Very well, Chong Ga, I said. I submit to the prophecy. Shanyar shall be my companion, and I shall nurse it as diligently as it desires. There was a ring of insincerity in my speech which was not lost on Chong Ga. He approached very close to me and peered into my eyes. If you attempt to dispose of my god, he warned, its brothers will come down from the mountains and tear you indescribably. He saw perhaps that I wasn't wholly convinced, for he added in an even more ominous tone, it has laid upon you the mark and seal of a flesh-dissolving sacrament. Destroy it, and this sacrament will be consummated in an instant. The flesh of your body will turn black and melt like tallow in the sun. You will become a seething mass of corruption. Omen paused, a look of unutterable torment in his eyes. There isn't much more to my story, Algernon. The guardians carried us safely to Lhasa, and a fortnight later I reached the Bay of Bengal, accompanied by half a hundred ragged, gaunt-visaged mendicants from the temples of obscure Indian villages. There was something about our caravan that had attracted them, and all during the voyage from Beng and all during the voyage from Bengal to Hong Kong, the Indian and Tibetan members of our crew would steal stealthily to my cabin at night and look in on me, and I had never before seen human faces quite so distorted with superstitious terror. Don't imagine for a moment that I didn't share their awe and fear of the thing I was compelled to companion. Continuously, I longed to carry it on deck and cast it into the sea. Only the memory of Shunga's warning and the thought of what might happen to me if I disregarded it kept me chained and submissive. It was not until weeks later, when I left the Indian and most of the Pacific Ocean behind me, that I discovered how unwise I had been to heed his vile threats. If I had resolutely hurled Shanyar into the sea, the shame and the horror might never have come upon me. Ullman's voice was rising, 
becoming shrill and hysterical. Shadur Fawn is an awful and mysterious being, a repellent and obscene and lethal being. But how do I know that it is omnipotent? Shanga may have maliciously lied to me. Shatnir Fawn may be merely an extension or distortion of inanimate nature. Some hideous process as yet unobserved and unexplained by the science of the West may be obnoxiously at work in desert places all over our planet to produce such fiendish anomalies. Perhaps parallel to protoplasmic life on the Earth's crust is this other aberrant and hidden life, the revolting sentiency of stones that aspire of earth shapes, parasitic and bestial that wax agile in the presence of man. Did not Cuvier believe that there had not been one but an infinite number of creations and that as our earth cooled after its departure from the sun, a succession of vitalic phenomena appeared on its surface? Conceding as we must the orderly and continuous development of protoplasmic life from simple forms which Cuvier stupidly and ridiculously denied, is it not still conceivable that another evolutionary cycle may have preceded the one which has culminated in us? A, a, a non-protoplasmic cycle? Whether we accept the planetismal or the three or four newer theories of planetary formation, it is permissible to believe that the Earth coalesced very swiftly into a compact mass after the segregation of its constituents in space and that it achieved sufficient crustal stability to support animate entities one or two or perhaps even five billion years ago. I do not claim that life as we know it would be possible in the earliest phases of planetary consolidation, but is it possible to assert dogmatically that beings possessed of intelligence and volition could not have evolved in a direction merely parallel to the cellular? Life as we know it is complexly bound up with such substances as chlorophyll and protoplasm, but does that preclude that possibility of an evolved sentiency in, an, in other forms of matter? How do we know that stones cannot think, that the earth beneath our feet may not once have been endowed with a hideous intelligence? Entire cycles of animate evolution may have occurred on this planet before the most primitive of living cells were evolved from the slime of warm seas. There may have been eons of experiments. Three billion years ago, in the fiery radiance of the rapidly condensing earth, who knows what monstrous shapes crawled or shambled? And how do we know that there are not survivals? Or that somewhere beneath the stars of heaven, complex and hideous processes are not still at work, shaping the inorganic into forms of primal malevolence? And what more inevitable than that some such primiparous spawn should have become in my eyes the apotheosis of all that was fiendish and accursed and unclean, and that I should have ascribed to it the attributes of divinity and imagined in a moment of madness that it was immune to destruction. I should have hurled it into the depths of the seas and risked boldly the fulfillment of Shanga's prophecy, for even had it proved itself omnipotent and omniscient by rising in fury from the waves or summoning its brothers to destroy me, I should have suffered indescribably for no more than a moment. Omen's voice had risen to a shrill scream. I should have passed quickly enough into the darkness had I encountered merely the wrath of Shanyur Fawn. It was not the fury, but the forbearance of Shanyur that has wrought an uncleanliness in my body's flesh and blackened and shriveled my soul till a furious hate had grown up in me for all that the world holds of serenity and joy. Ullman's voice broke, and for a moment there was silence in the room.
Then with a sudden convulsive movement of his right arm, he uncloaked the whole of his face. He was standing very nearly in the center of the office, and the light from its eastern window illumined with a hideous clarity all that remained of his features. But Algernon didn't utter a sound for all that the sight was appalling enough to revolt a corpse. He simply clung shakingly to the desk and waited with ashen lips for Ullman to continue. It came to me again as I slept, drinking its fill, and in the morning I woke to find that the flesh of my body had grown fetid and loathsome and that my face... my face... Yes, Clark, I understand. Algernon's voice was vibrant with compassion. I'll get you some brandy. Ullman's eyes shone with an awful light. Do you believe me? he cried. Do you believe that Chanir Fawn has wrought this uncleanliness? Slowly, Algernon shook his head. No, Clark. Chanir Fawn is nothing but a stone idol, sculptured by some Asian artist with quite exceptional talent, however primitive he may have been in other respects. I believe that Shanga kept you under the influence of some potent drug until he had, had cut your face, and that he also hypnotized you and suggested every detail of the story you have just told me. I believe you are still actually under the spell of that hypnosis. When I boarded the ship at Calcutta, there was nothing wrong with my face, shrilled Ullman. Conceivably not. But some minion of the priest may have administered the drug and performed the operation on shipboard. I can only guess at what happened, of course, but it is obvious that you are the victim of some hideous charlatanry. I've visited India, Clark, and I have a very keen respect for the hypnotic endowments of the Oriental. It's ghastly and unbelievable how much a Hindu or a Tibetan can accomplish by simple suggestion. I feared... I feared that you would doubt. Ullman's voice had risen to a shriek, but I swear to you. The sentence was never finished. A hideous pallor overspread the archaeologist's face. His jaw sagged, and into his eyes there crept a look of panic fight. For a second he stood clawing at his throat like a man in the throes of an epileptic fit. Then something, some invisible force, seemed to propel him backward. Choking and gasping, he staggered against the wall and threw out his arms in a gesture of frantic appeal. Keep, keep it off, he sobbed. I can't, I can't breathe. I can't. With a cry, Algernon leapt forward, but before he reached the other's side, the unfortunate man had sunk to the floor and was moaning and gibbering and rolling about in a most sickening way. Right, and that is the end of Chapter 1 of The Horror from the Hills by Frank Belknap Long. Uh, I believe it is only three chapters. It might be four. Um, so this will be going at least over the next three weeks. Um, please feel free to send me an email uh, if you have any thoughts or comments or anything you want to say. Any questions you want to ask, I'm happy to answer. Um, you can email me at theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com. You can throw me a follow on Twitter, at uh, WeirdTalesPod. Uh, please feel free to check out Into the Black by William Meekle. Uh, M-I-E-K-L-E, William Meekle. I uh, narrated it in the audiobook, and I'm really quite proud of it. I really enjoyed all of the stories. I think you will, too. 
Uh, please feel free to support me on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Weird Tales podcast. Um, thank you so much to uh, Hermagoras. Thank you. Pontus Fredrickson. Thank you. Andrew Buchanan. Thank you so much. Uh, Damon Bowles. Thank you so much. Marco Van Putin. Thank you. Ryan Patrick. Thank you. Ineptus Astartes, new uh, $3 official patron. Thank you so much. I am very grateful uh, for your for your support. Uh, Matthias Hansen, thank you. Alder Riley, thank you so much. Mark Vincent, Eric Braun, and Chris Kelly, because I just seem to do you three guys all together because you were like my first three and you all kind of joined in on the same day. So thank you all so much. Um, I'm so grateful uh, for everybody who... Uh, kicks in to support. Um, it really means a lot to me. And uh, I think that will about do it. If you get the chance to get vaccinated, go and get vaccinated. Um, otherwise, wear a mask whenever you're out. Even after you get vaccinated, wear a mask when you go out because um, you can still like pick up the virus and pass it on to others. And wearing a mask stops that from happening. So wear a mask when you go out, whether or not you've been vaccinated. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you have um, a nice day, and I will see you next week. Ta-da-da-da-da-da. Here's the bloops. It was this book which had endeared him to the directors of the Manhattan Museum of Fine Arts and prompted their unanimous choice of him to succeed the late Halpin Chomp, Halpin Calmers. It was this book. It was this book which had endeared him to the directors of the Manhattan Museum of Fine Arts and prompted their unanimous choice of him to succeed the late Halpin Chalmers. Calmers, God damn. Calmers. It was this book which had endeared him to the directors of the Manhattan Museum of Fine Arts and prompted their unanimous choice of him to succeed the late Halpin Calmers as curator of archaeology when the latter retired in the fall of the previous year. If you, like me, hear the name Halpin Calmers and think, where do I know that name from? Halpin Calmers was the guy from The Hounds of Tindalos, also by Frank Belknaplong, who uh, sealed himself in a circular room trying to escape the hounds until uh, an earthquake happened and broke the room and then the hounds got to him. Uh, the Hounds of Tindalos, available on the Weird Tales podcast. Go back and listen to it if you want to know the real story. That was the real story, if you want to know the whole story. I should have warned you not to touch me, he moaned. I can't stand being touched. Airplane again. Go away, airplane. The disc on them. I can't stand being touched. Fucking airplanes, man. This is why I normally record at night and not at 1.48 in the afternoon. It would be the height of folly to attempt to send an... <sighs> Fucking airplanes again. I'm never going to get this done. I have reason to suspect that Shania Fawn will... God damn it, airplane, stop! Entire cycles of animate evolution may have occurred on this planet before the most primitive of living cells were evolved from the slime of warm seas. There have been eons of 
Oh, I'm, that was it. Man, that whole thing. I was going along perfectly, missed one word in that sentence. Doggone it. And what more inevitable than that? Some such prima, prim, wow, prim, primiparous? Hold on. I'm going to go look that up. And you're going to come with me. We're going on a little, going on a little journey here. Forvo.com for all your word pronunciation needs. All right. What is that? What the hell is that word now? Primiparous. P-R-I-M-I-R. Primip, primiparous. Wow. You actually found a word not on Forvo. Thanks, Forvo. And thank you, Frank Belknap Long. Pronounce primiparous. Okay, there's a YouTube video about it. Let's see what this YouTube video says. Primiparous. Primiparous. Primiparous, I guess. All right. For even had it proved itself omnipotent and omniscient by rising in fury from the waves or summoning its brothers to destroy me, I should have suffered indescribably for no more than a moment. See, and now the very next line says, Ullman's voice had risen to a shrill scream. So, I'm just going to go back and do that whole paragraph over again. And that I should have ascribed to the attributes of divinity and imagined in a moment of madness that... I'm also going to turn the volume down on the microphone because this is going to go really badly. <clears throat> also, let's push the microphone back a little bit just to be on the safe side. <clears throat> 